What's up, guys? Welcome back to the show. This episode is supported by one of the most awesome companies in the Bitcoin space, who I'd like to thank, CoinKite. More of a Bitcoin geek workshop than a typical company, the crew of hardcore Bitcoiners at CoinKite imagine the products they want to exist in order to interact with and store Bitcoin securely, and then they just go ahead and build them. This has led to them becoming one of the most highly regarded brands in the Bitcoin space, largely due to the cold card hardware wallet, which is a wildly popular self-custody solution amongst many experienced Bitcoiners. The most recent version of this product, the MK4, is out now with several new features designed to increase ease of use, introduce even more security features for multiple attack vectors, and make the degree of security which ColdCard offers more robust than ever. Thankfully, these guys also like to have some fun and tinker with some not-so-serious products, which has resulted in a personal industry favorite of mine, the Block Clock Mini. Whether you've begun orienting your life around block time, need to check an open dime balance, want to keep an eye on the Bitcoin exchange rate, or just get a kick out of watching Moscow time slowly trend towards zero, the Block Lock Mini has become a favored piece of Bitcoin paraphernalia and an increasingly less subtle way of telling the world that you're here for hyper-Bitcoinization. To learn more about all their awesome products and stay up to date on what they're working on, visit coinkite.com. Let's do it. There we go. We're live. Cool. How's it going? <clears throat> Great. How are you, John? I'm good. It's been a while since I've done one of these, so I'm uh, I'm pumped to have this conversation. You know, you've been, I think you've been up to some interesting stuff, and you probably have a lot of cool stories to share. So, why don't we just uh, dive right in? I mean, who are you, and what are you up to? And we'll take it from there. Cool. Yeah. So I go by Sid on the internet. And last year I hatched this plan to ride a motorcycle around the U S and go see all of the great Bitcoin meetups that are popping up around the country. So I started at uh, Bitcoin 2022 in April, I bought a Harley Davidson right before that. And I've covered to date over 8,000 miles around the U S and gone to 25 different Bitcoin meetups all over the country. So I went to Texas first, then across the South, went to Tennessee and uh, a bunch in North Carolina. And then up through the Midwest, went to Columbus, Detroit, Benton Harbor, Michigan, Indianapolis, Chicago, Milwaukee, Minneapolis, Sioux Falls, Kansas City. And I am now uh, in the front range of the Rocky Mountains, just relaxing for a couple of days and doing some writing and just kind of unplugging because I'm an introvert and met a lot of people <laughs> over the past 10 weeks. So, uh, but it's been an, an incredible journey, just getting to meet so many Bitcoiners in person, shake people's hands, kind of step out of the Twitter bubble and see what it's like in real life and what Bitcoiners do with their actual lives, not just what they talk about on Twitter. Yeah, man, I got so many questions for you, but you know, it's funny you say that, <clears throat> I think probably a lot of us relate to that, but so an introvert might be a bit strong, but I've always preferred to be an observer than like someone that's actively like really engaging in the moment or the circumstance or the situation. And the, the only place where that's really, where I don't feel that is like at a Bitcoin conference or at a meetup where it's just so great to interact with people and like, it just all seems very natural. But if, you know, I remember in my former job, if I was like at a networking event, you know, I had to network to get clients and that kind of stuff. Like I would just mm -hmm. sit by the, you know, stand by the bar with one <laughs> or two people I knew, drink beers and wait till it would be, would be over. Right. And it's, um, it's funny how, well, I, I guess being inspired to hang out and interact and learn from other Bitcoiners is, is 
causing many of us to maybe engage more and be less, you know, just on the sidelines of sorts of things. Um, mm -hmm. So tell me, I mean, fuck, I don't even know where to start, but that, that seems like a lot of awesome uh, that you've been engaged in. And well, maybe we start here. I, you, you said before that you were in Thailand before, and you know, I, I lived for a time in Thailand, spent a lot of time in Chiang Mai. What were you doing there before all this got started? Yeah, so my story of ending up in Thailand is kind of, uh, it took me a long time to get there. Um, but I grew up, I guess I'll start just growing up. My dad is an airline pilot, commercial airline pilot. So I grew up traveling a lot. Like we didn't go to Disney World. We went to like Vietnam for Thanksgiving. And nice. first time I left the country, I was eight years old and moved to China for two weeks. And that was so eye-opening as far as people live a completely different life than what part of China? anyone I've ever met. Sorry? What part of China? We went to Beijing, Shanghai. We took a cruise down the Yangtze River before they built the Three Gorges Dam and flooded that whole area. And then we went to some smaller city that was on the Yangtze, I think. I, I think we went to three cities. And so I got a lot of exposure. And that was just so out of the norm. So I had the traveling bug very early on, but I never went to a foreign country for more than a week or two. And then in college, for multiple reasons, I passed up the opportunity to do study abroad. And so I, I never really got the chance to live abroad. And when I graduated, I went to Southeast Asia. And that's when I first went to Thailand. And we went to Vietnam. That was my second time in Vietnam. And Cambodia and Bali and Thailand just struck me as totally different than anywhere I'd ever been. Just the, not, I mean, the place is unique in its own way, but a lot of places are unique in their own way. It was just a vibe that I got when I was there, the culture, the people, it's so welcoming and warm and fun. And I thought to myself, this is a place that I would want to live for some period of time. So originally my thought was I would work for five or 10 years or whatever, and then burn out. And when I burn out, I'll go be a hippie on the beach and get my uh, <laughs> scuba mat, like become a dive master and just yeah, yeah. scuba dive for a year somewhere in Southern Thailand. And then it was 2018 when I started getting into Bitcoin, like 2017, 2018, I quit my office job in early 2018. I started working on a mining project. I was doing a bunch of freelancing stuff. And then I started working for uh, Envision, which is like a design software. And I discovered that they're fully remote. And that was the first time I'd been exposed to remote work beyond like some small, tiny startup that works on remote work or something. So it's like, wow, this is a thousand person company that has no offices. They have WeWork passes and that's it. And they're operating pretty well. And I had used Envision at my last company. So I knew they were legitimate, a great software. So it kind of changed my mental mode that you don't really need an office to build a good product. And then at the end of 2018, I got a job full-time at Kraken and they're fully remote. So that's when I decided, you know what, I was living in New York and that was my third year in New York. I wasn't really enjoying the lifestyle. I felt like it didn't fit me very much. I kind of gave it a try because that's what everyone out of the school I was going to, the university I, I was going to, wanted to do, that was peak, was go to New York and work in some high power job and make a lot of money and wear a suit every day. And I didn't do the high power suit thing. I did the tech 
entrepreneurship thing that still kind of graded against me the whole time I was there. It really didn't feel like home for me. So I decided in the back of my girlfriend's car in 2018 uh, to pick up and leave that I was going to go move somewhere. And Thailand was not actually my, my first choice. I was thinking about a bunch of different places. And then eventually I decided, you know what, I'll give it 90 days in Thailand and see if I like that. And so I picked up and left at the end of 2019 with a suitcase and moved to Thailand and never really looked back. I mean, I fell in love with it immediately. Just such an easy place to live. Um, mm -hmm. And I can dig into that. I mean, there's, there's parts of Thailand that just feel like literally magical to me that has attracted <laughs> me. And the first, I mean, I'll tell you the first time I left Thailand for an extended period of time, I cried on that flight and I've never cried leaving a place before. Like I, I never felt that attachment to where I grew up or, you know, to New York or anything. I felt like a real emotional attachment to being in, in Thailand. Yeah. Well, you know, I'm, I'm kind of curious. <clears throat> you said you can break into some of them, like, you know, some places literally feel magical. I mean, what go for it. Yeah. So I have this feeling that like life is just a lot easier in Thailand. There's a lot of things that got lifted off my back when I moved there. So one thing is just sort of like an American cultural thing that maybe is just because of the places that I lived and the people that I was around, but I always felt surrounded by this professional culture that first and foremost, people were concerned with making it with, and that came in sort of two forms. One was being able to prove to others that you're capable and kind of exceeding your potential. And then also just being able to survive that people need to work, work, work just to make ends meet. And when I moved to Thailand, especially with a Western salary, and living on Thai expenses, all of that melted away. And also just the attitude of Thai people and Thai culture is just so much more laid back than the Americans. They're just, I feel on the whole, much more relaxed, especially outside of Bangkok. Like Bangkok has its own professional culture, but I live in Chiang Mai in the North and it just feels much more relaxed, much more my pace of living. And then as far as sort of the magical elements, I feel like every time something goes wrong or you get in a little bit of trouble in Thailand, something just works out and fixes it. And I feel like in America, it's common that things snowball and get worse and worse. But I'll just give you one example. Like I went hiking, my mom was able to visit me and I went hiking with her uh, late last year. And I took her up Doi Sutep, which is the mountain next to Chiang Mai that like overlooks Chiang Mai. And before we even set off, she said, do you have a plan to get back down? Cause it's a long hike up there and I don't want to walk all the way back down. And I didn't have a plan, but I told her, you know what? It'll be fine. We'll figure it out. There'll be taxis up there. And I kind of thought maybe we'll find a taxi, but it's not likely, but it'll work out. That's kind of what I thought in my head. Like we'll figure it out. We don't have to plan everything all ahead of time. And we got up there and it's a hill tribe at the top that lives at the top. There's no taxis. So we started walking out of their town and went in. I went in to go to the bathroom at some restaurant and get a drink. And this Thai family looks at us and they look outside and they're like, how did you get here? 
you don't have motorcycles, you don't have a car. And we're like, oh, we, we hiked up it. And they cracked up and they're cracking jokes about how they would never do that and stabbing at each other about who would be the worst at hiking. And they're like, do you want us to just take you back down? We can drive you back down. So we got a ride back down to the temple. Then we went and explored the temple. And then we were going to leave and go take a taxi back down to the city. We crossed paths with them again. And they're like, we'll just take you down. Don't worry about it. You don't need to pay for a taxi. We got seats for you. And they took us all the way back down. And I told my mom, like, see, this is kind of the thing that happens to me regularly here is you just find yourself in a sticky situation and it just gets solved. Like someone helps you out or, you know, something happens that fixes it. Yeah. You know, I used to go before I moved there because I lived in Thailand for over a year. Um, I used to go there from Shanghai a lot because I was living in Shanghai and I'd go there for like long weekends or vacations or whatever. And like the difference, so in Shang, you know, in China, even though it's incredible in its own right, it's very like cold. And I, I mean, like uh, the vibe is kind of cold mm. and gray and hustle and bustle and never stop. Like, it's just a very intense environment. And then I would get to like, I'd get off the exit, the airport in Chiang Mai, for example. And it'd just be like, this weight would just come off. Like the colors would be amazing flowers everywhere, welcoming, smiling people. Cause there's like no smiles in, in Shanghai, right? Like people are just <laughs> like pan face all the time. And it's just such a, it would like, it would take me a day just to get the like gunk of China off of me. And then I'd be there for like a week and it would be lovely. And, you know, go to the, the, the Mesa waterfalls, right? Like in May rim area and go for a swim and, you know, have workouts at some of the gyms and, you know, be there at Songkran, which is insane in Shanghai or in Chiang Mai, which mm -hmm. I'm sure you experience. but it, it is a magical place. I mean, for me, I think it's like the best place in the world. The, like so many places, the thing, the big damper on it is just the government and, you know, the, the monarchy, which is corrupt and which takes more from the people than it ought to. And, you know, that puts a, a damper on what otherwise would be like just such an amazing culture and landscape and environment. And like, you know, from food to religion to, you know, the geography and like, it's just, it just, it's like a Shangri-La sort of place, you know, and I hope one day, mm -hmm. hopefully on a Bitcoin standard, the true like richness of that culture can come through and not be suppressed by, uh, you know, the surreptitious theft of uh, the people's wealth. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's really the black mark on it. And one other thing that I've noticed just being there as a foreigner is the distance from my, my entire past life, I guess. And it's kind of created these two lives now. Like I have my friends in Thailand and my life in Thailand. And then I have my friends and history in America. And it's difficult to bridge those gaps sometimes. Like people ask me, why did you move to Thailand? And it's so hard to describe to them in a meaningful way because they haven't been there. Like you've been there, you've seen it. So it's a little bit easier, I think, for you to, to understand what I'm saying. But for most of my American friends, they just don't get it because they swim in a completely different fishbowl all the time. And they've never jumped out of that. Yeah. So it's hard to relate those two worlds and to connect them. Yeah, I can appreciate that. They also went kind of batshit insane during COVID too, which is a blemish on it uh, from my perspective. So we, we yeah. shall see how they, the reputation recovers from all that. But um, so how do we go from there to the decision to ride a motorcycle across America and visit all these Bitcoin meetups? 
Yeah. So because of the, the batshit insane COVID rules around getting in and out of Thailand, I never left. So I got there, got back in right before they locked down in 2020, getting a, after getting a year long visa in Vietnam for Thailand, because you have to leave the country to get the visa. So I stayed in Thailand for about two and a half years in total without leaving. And I knew I wanted to come back and see friends and family. My mom was able to come out, but not my dad. So I wanted to see him. I wanted to see my friends that I hadn't seen in two, three years. So I thought about doing a road trip, but most of my friends live in like one of three major cities. So what am I going to do in between? Cause I didn't really want to just fly from city to city. I wanted to do something more and see America because I'd left it for so long. And after COVID happened, it just, from what I had seen, it felt like a lot had, has changed. Like we've aged, you know, a decade and two years. So I wanted to see what the hell has happened in America and road trip is a great way to do that. And I fell in love with riding motorcycles while I was in Thailand. That's the main mode of transport. I don't have a car, I have two bikes and that's how I get around. So I thought, why not do something on a motorcycle across the country, but what am I going to do in between? And on Twitter, I started seeing the rise of these Bitcoin meetups. And I mean, working at Kraken for two and a half years, they really drilled it into us that you should not talk about working at Kraken. You should not talk about owning Bitcoin. And it comes from a good place. Like they're very security conscious and they don't want you to uh, put yourself in danger or put the company in danger or put assets in danger. So I kind of had this paranoid feeling around Bitcoin, but that's not my personality at all. I love to talk to people about it. I love to engage and figure out their perspective and, and, help people understand why I got so into this and why I think it's so important. And that's Bitcoin meetups to me, people coming together and seeing each other offline and making real relationships that are not just trying to get likes on Twitter. It's, it's very pure and real human interaction. So I watched these dots kind of nodes grow all over the U S and I thought, damn, I can link this together pretty easily and do a whole road trip. And then my mind kind of spiraled from there. And every day I thought, well, what if I did this? And I, you know, added some interview element to it and made it a bigger and bigger thing. And then eventually thought, what if I brought companies on board and they could sponsor it? And that would help me pay for the costs and also make it just much more fun and much more challenging instead of me just going from place to place and being an introvert. I had this feeling like I'll do this for three weeks and then I'll burn out and be like, no, I can't do this anymore. And I'll just quit. <laughs> So working with companies was a way to guarantee I can't quit because now people right, have right. bought into this vision. So I have to do it. So I started talking to a couple different Bitcoin only companies. And I, I had this ethos from the beginning, like, I'm going to do this. And if companies want to join me, they can. If not, I'm still going to do it on my own. And so I, I kind of figured I'm only going to work with companies that I respect. I'm not just going to take money from like Celsius or someone who has a bunch of money to blow and wants free advertising or wants, you know, some unique advertising. And so I started talking to Swan because I really like them. They came on board first and Corey signed up immediately as title sponsor. Like, I think this idea is great. We're going to do something cool with it. So they're also going to produce like a docu-series out of all the footage that I'm capturing, all the interviews that I'm doing with people at different meetups. 
around the country. And then Unchained Capital came on board, uh, Bitcoin Magazine and Upstream Data as well. So I didn't hit the total amount of money that I wanted to raise, but I'm like, you know what? I'm working with four really awesome companies that are helping me out a bunch beyond the money. So it's going to be really fun. And so far it's been just an incredible experience as any kind of road trip is. Yeah. I mean, so what have been some of the observations, takeaways, insights that you had after, you know, covering this much ground, but more importantly, in meeting with and connecting with so many Bitcoiners in so many different places? I mean, how does it feel to make Bitcoin Twitter real in a sense? Yeah, I mean, making Bitcoin Twitter real, uh, I highly recommend it to all Bitcoiners. <laughs> Go to your local Bitcoin meetup because it is very different. And I think a much better iteration, you take away all of the, the gaming of the Twitter algorithm and you know the things that Twitter does and makes people do to get engagement and to grow their accounts and whatnot. It just kind of strips all that away. And you just get to meet people face to face. And I've seen some really cool stuff out of that. So one is like, I, I've had this feeling really kind of started in, in like 2019 with Twitter and Bitcoin Twitter. There's a lot of doom and a lot of people just sharing what is useful and helpful information to know, but it's really depressing, honestly. And sometimes I feel very depressed when I get off of Twitter and I'm like, wow, the world is burning and everyone is conspiring against the common person. And we're just fucked. And I went to started going to Bitcoin meetups and that doesn't exist because it's very difficult. I think to be like that as a person, it, it just grinds you away. Like you can do that on your phone and then put your phone away, but to live your life like that is pretty awful. So people don't do it. And going to Bitcoin meetups, people aren't talking about the doom they're, they're doing things. And that's been one of the coolest things I've met people at meetups, everyone has their own little side project that they're working on. They might work a normal fiat job, but they're writing something or they're building something and they're excited about talking about that and about building a better future. Rather than dooming about what the future is going to be, they're taking action. Like one, one thing that I've seen a lot of is homesteading or interest in like homesteading and gardening. I stayed on a permaculture farm that a Bitcoiner just said, yeah, you can stay in my yurt for free that I'm going to list on Airbnb. And he showed me around the permaculture farm and we talked about Bitcoin and permaculture and farming and getting back to the land. And it was fascinating to me. The, one of the first things we did when we got there is I pulled up to the yurt and there's sheep all around it. And he was like, sorry, I, I wasn't able to move the paddock before you came. So the sheep are like going to live around you while you're here. <sighs> It's fine. They're like <laughs> buying away, but there were like 60 sheep here, like a lot of sheep. And I asked him like, how big of a flock did you start with? And when did you start? And he said, I started four years ago with three sheep and now I have 60 and I don't know how to control them anymore. Like I have too many. <laughs> and he just looked at me and said, it's a great example of exponential growth. Like your mind can't comprehend when you start with three sheep that you're going to have 60 this in this short of a time frame, but it does just explode like that. And he said, everything on the farm kind of works that way. And we talked a lot about like the interplay between, which is another thing that's come up again and again on the trip, the interplay between you taking action to make something happen and letting things happen. 
And permaculture is all about that, figuring out and observing where can something else do the work for you so you can get the most results for the least amount of work. Right. And letting you know nature kind of do its thing. And because he's working in that domain, exponential growth is all around him. It's always like plant one little thing. And then before you know it, it's taken over the yard and you've got a thousand strawberries or whatever. Mm. And you just kind of plan, you're intelligent about how you plan it. And then a little bit of work yields a lot of growth. If you just wait and, you know, put in the, the little bit of time and effort that you need to fertilize it or whatever. Yeah. I mean, that's definitely one thing that I've noticed through my interactions. <clears throat> I mean, the generosity amongst Bitcoiners is, you know, I, I've never really seen anything like it. I mean, I, I mean, a huge part mm -hmm. of that is because you're already so in sync, right? Like, you know, that you line up on so many paramount values and as a result, your perspective is most likely very closely aligned. And so like you feel that you have a, as soon as you meet someone, you're like, you are, you feel like, you know, them intimately already, if they're a Bitcoiner, you know, and if there's, if there's still a feeling out process to figure out if they really are the type of Bitcoiner that you are, or that the way you interpret Bitcoin. But once you do that, you're like, <clears throat> how can we not be best friends sort of thing? Right. How can I not offer you my, you know, the spare bedroom in my house or my yard or, or like whatever I have, you know, how can I not offer it to you? And isn't that, isn't that a funny thing that, that this is what is emerging as a part of this, you know, counterculture and, you know, perhaps in the future dominant yeah. culture, that this is one of the aspects or principles or part of the ethos that is so early and so evident. Yeah. That, that like staying with Bitcoiners is something that really surprised me initially. I didn't think that I would really stay with any Bitcoiners on the trip because I was thinking in this, this mode of, you know, being kind of raised within Bitcoin at Kraken of never talk about Bitcoin. Everyone's out to get you and out to get your Bitcoin. So I thought, who's going to let me stay in their home? I've never met them before. And probably half the nights that I've spent <laughs> in cities on this trip, I've stayed with Bitcoiners and they've been so open to letting me crash in a spare bedroom or whatever. And yeah, to your point, like I have felt with a lot of those people that I've stayed with, there's an instant connection because once you feel out, okay, you are actually the same kind of Bitcoiner that I am, like it just vibes immediately. It's so funny. Like I, I stayed with one guy in Charlotte and uh, he, I met him at Bitcoin 2022. So I guess he kind of had felt me out a little bit before, but he is living with his girlfriend now and told his girlfriend, like, I'm going to, have this guy stay with us this one night that he's in Charlotte. And she said, haven't you always told me that the ethos is don't trust, verify, <laughs> don't trust anyone. Like, why are you letting a stranger who's on a road trip come stay in our house? And she ended up being, she met me and then she was okay with it. But I've had that experience a few times where people are kind of leery a little bit when I arrive and then we sit down and talk for a half hour, an hour, and then it becomes more comfortable and it just makes the trip so much more rewarding because when you stay with someone, you get such a deeper insight into their life, not to mention all the extra time you get to talk and meet and kind of understand each other's backgrounds and everything. So it's just added so much to this trip because just going to a meetup, going to a bar, having a few beers, it's a different, more guarded conversation. But when you go to someone's house, like 
you know, nothing is off the table at that point. Totally. You know, it reminds me of uh, when I, my first Bitcoin conference was Bitcoin 2021. And, um, you know, you'd, you'd meet someone and, the, you know, you, you wouldn't know who they were, but they'd say, hey, I'm like whatever Nim on Twitter. You know, you, you've never seen their face before. You don't know their name. All you know them by is, the, you know, what they've tweeted about. And as soon as they tell you like what their alias is, you're just like, oh shit, come here, give me a hug. Like it's like immediately you, you're like, again, like your best friends immediately and you know nothing about this person. It's just the funniest thing. Um, you know, we, we throw around this term Bitcoin or a lot. And I think, well, obviously there's some, to some degree, we all kind of know what it means. Like if you know, you know, sort of thing. Um, but having been around in so many different places, so many different geographies and like the subcultures within those geographies around the States, what, like, what would you say are some of the hallmarks of a quote unquote Bitcoiner that you've, you know, observed in your travels? Yeah. So I think low time preference is the first thing that I would mention that I kind of see with everyone that I meet at a Bitcoin meetup, there's just a definite, I don't know, calmness and clarity and patience around what they're doing in their lives. And it goes completely counter to what the mainstream understanding of Bitcoin is because it gets piled up, I think, with trading and crypto, that Bitcoiners are flashy and wealthy. And I think a lot of Bitcoiners probably are pretty damn wealthy, but they don't show it at all. I've you know, never seen like a piece of designer clothing, I think, at a Bitcoin meetup in the entire time I've been on the road in uh Texas, I was moving my bike in the parking lot and I set off a car alarm just with the sound of the engine. And I looked over at the truck and it's half white, half rust panel. It was dark, so I thought it was brown. And I looked a little deeper and went up to it and it's rust. Half of the truck is rusted out and the license plate says hodling. <laughs> and here comes a guy out of the bar and he was at the meetup and he's like, yeah, I, you know, I've been in and around Bitcoin since 2013, 2014. So I'm sure he's doing fine, but he's like, I have no reason to upgrade this truck. It runs. I like it. It's a good truck. It's easy to fix. So I'm not going to replace it. And that's a much more common attitude than flashy spending money. I see a lot of Bitcoiners buying old beat up cars and fixing them up or old beat up houses or pieces of land or whatever and building their own thing on it. And much more content with doing that than buying the newest, nicest, flashiest thing. And I think that has a lot to do with low time preference. People want to save and, and they're much more aligned around family, community, health than they are around flash and money and proving to others that you know, they have a lot of money or that they're very capable of, of building money or whatever. So that, totally. that's definitely a big thing. One other thing I've noticed that maybe isn't as apparent online is Bitcoiners uh, don't, they're not really ones to squabble or blame or point to someone else to do something. When I see that a Bitcoiner is like unhappy with something, they just go and fix it. They don't talk about why it's that way. Well, at least in the sense that they want someone else to fix it for them. They just go and fix it. There's a strong personal responsibility, I guess I would say, that I find in a lot of Bitcoiners. 
I went to a beef steak, my first beef steak actually, and it was in a campsite in like northern Minnesota, like two hours north of Minneapolis. I saw we the photos. Amazing. Yeah. It was so cool. We camped for like three days. And one thing I noticed was rarely would someone ask someone else to do something, at least that they couldn't do themselves. You know, like a way slice was cooking. Sometimes he would ask people to do something, but he's doing something. That's why he needs help, you know? So, mm-hmm. and no one would squabble about being asked to do anything from him. And generally, like we had a fire that was going for the entire, I don't know, hundred hours that we were there and people would just, they'd be drinking a beer and chatting and then they'd get up and go to the fire pit, like the pile of firewood and pull some over without anyone asking them to do that. And the whole thing just kind of self-organized. There wasn't any like, oh, you need to go do that. And we need to set this up and throwing out commands. If someone, if something needed to be done, someone would get up and do it. And I think that I see that attitude throughout a lot of Bitcoiners on this trip. They just get up and do what needs to be done without squabbling about it. I'm sure you've had lots of time for contemplation, you know, on the road, right? Several hours riding on the road and stuff. You know, what do you, I know you said that personal responsibility, but why do you think that is being inspired by something like Bitcoin and, and why is this culture being fostered by, by this digital protocol? You know, do you have any deeper thoughts on that? Yeah. And my, my first thought on that is there's a filter just to getting into Bitcoin that requires you to take responsibility. The whole idea that Bitcoin doesn't have a help desk, doesn't have Anyone you can turn to if you screw up means you have to put in the work on the front end to figure out what the hell you're doing with this, figure out why you're investing in it or using it, and then go out and seek the resources to use it effectively. And now there's more and more resources, but that trait of you can't ever get bailed out. You can't, there will never be a help desk. That will always be true. So even if you get into Bitcoin, six months ago, you still had to figure out how to use a wallet and load up sats and whatnot. And if you've gotten far enough to go to a Bitcoin meetup, you're probably interested in this so much that you went down the rabbit hole, you took the initiative to read and learn and dive into this topic. And I think it helps that the entire mainstream culture just maligns it. So if you have the wherewithal to, and the commitment to look into it enough to feel like I want to go to a Bitcoin meetup because I want to talk to other people who are interested in this, then you probably took a lot of personal responsibility as far as understanding how how it works and what's behind it and the environment around Bitcoin that makes it necessary. So I think that drives a lot of it in and of itself and kind of self-selects people who have a lot of personal responsibility. Yeah, I mean, I I agree that that's definitely at least a component of it. what do you think, I mean, have you learned more about Bitcoin in, in these in, encounters, these, you know, long discussions by the campfire or, you know, at around the yurt or whatever? Like, I'm sure has your perspective or understanding of Bitcoin evolved as a result of all this? I think my, my perspective on Bitcoin at this point is starting to just bleed into other areas of my life more than 
into understanding Bitcoin itself. Like I find that most of the conversations that I'm having at meetups are not actually about Bitcoin. We're not talking about <laughs> Lightning Network and multi-sig and whatnot. We're talking about like how to live a good life and how to enjoy your life. And a lot of those things line up with the ethos of Bitcoin and of Bitcoiners. But I've like developed a much stronger interest over this trip in like raising a family and raising my own food and understanding where my food comes from in health and like why I might want to be healthy and what health means in like personal sovereignty and personal responsibility. Those kind of topics say, I feel like I'm talking about more than the actual mechanics of how Bitcoin works. Um, I did get into one deep conversation at the, at the yurt actually about like what Bitcoin actually is. Cause the, the guy that owns that homestead, he was kind of pausing to me that, you know, we think Bitcoin is money, but I don't think we really know what Bitcoin is and we can put it into words. And personally, I'm not even sure if we'll ever understand what Bitcoin is. It's kind of this separate reality that we've constructed that ticks away at its own metronome based on rules of math and physics. And it's kind of like we've created uh, our own natural law, which is like fantastically interesting to me. One of the first conversations I had on this trip was about that. I talked to uh, J.M. Bush, who was one of the uh, co-authors of Thank God for Bitcoin. And we kind of talked about how in his view, half of life is doing what you kind of feel is right and moving forward and pushing and giving your own energy to move in the direction you want to go in. And half of life is waiting for, in his view, waiting for God to tell you what you're going to do, kind of having this patience to, to surrender to reality and let reality tell you what's going to happen next. And Bitcoin is kind of this thing that somebody did go out and set out and create those rules, but once it started running and now that it's reached such, such a size, the entire point of it is it's rules without rulers, which is kind of the same thing as say gravity, just as we don't pass laws because we don't like gravity. We don't like some aspect of gravity. We don't argue about it and pass laws to change it. We just have to adapt to it and live with it. We're going to have to adapt to and live with Bitcoin because it has reached this velocity where it's now its own beast that is out there that we cannot control and we shouldn't be able to control. And it will just do its own thing and we will have to adapt to those rules now. So it's much more like a law of physics than it is like a computer program that we can just change the code for. We're just going to have to, to mold our lives around it. And JM was kind of saying that's similar to how we just had to mold our lives to what God has given us. God gave us two legs and two arms and two eyes and, and a world that looks like this and hot and cold and all of these things. And we have to learn how to live within that reality. We can change it to some extent, but at some point we have to notice that there are bounds to that. And it's better sometimes to just acquiesce to what reality gives you. And mm -hmm. we're kind of reaching that point with, with Bitcoin, which is really interesting. Very interesting. You know, that's a very deep rabbit hole in, in and of itself, you know, to consider, to start thinking about it in those ways. Um, 
Yeah. I mean, I, I think about that stuff a lot and it's, um, well, as we all know, the rabbit hole seems to be endless, as you say, like perhaps we'll never fully understand mm -hmm. it, but the journey of attempting to is certainly feels not only engaging, but incredibly rewarding because as you pursue that journey, it's not just intellectual masturbation, as you've been saying, like these transformations and these different these evolving perspectives that people have on health and community and freedom and sovereignty and all these things are affected by that pursuit. And they seem to be affected in a very positive way, such that it's creating communities and a culture like the one that you've been gaining access to or experiencing over the last few months. And, you know, I think you'd probably uh, look upon those, those people and those places and, and the, the, the emerging culture as being like, wow, really good. Like something very, very positive mm -hmm. and good is happening here, especially when you juxtapose it against what's happening in the broader world. Yeah, it feels like Bitcoiners are the only community that I've been in lately that has hope for the future. And it's completely different than, than every other community. Every other community is kind of in this mode of, I'm, I'm just fighting to survive, to make it through you know the tough times that we're in bitcoiners are recognizing that there are tough times but they're really taking action and and know that there's a light at the end of the tunnel and they can see a light at the end of the tunnel and i think that's a very uh very rare thing in this day and age we've totally. just been so so beat down by a slowly insidiously destroyed society and economy through fiat money. And if we can fix that, and uh, a Bitcoiner put this well on the beefsteak trip, it's not that Bitcoin fixes this. Like we're not going to live in a utopia. I think once we have Bitcoin, we're still going to have all of the same problems that, that have plagued humanity for centuries, but it certainly helps. And it gets us out of a very deep hole that we're in right now. And will make things a hell of a lot better. So think adopting Bitcoin will help in a lot of ways. And that's why Bitcoiners have so much hope because it's this one thing that really helps across so many domains in a single stroke. Yeah, totally agree. I mean, we're always going to create problems for ourselves, right? Like we mm -hmm. will just, we'll find ways to do that no matter what circumstance we're in, but it certainly seems like what Bitcoin represents is a means of at least tilting things towards extracting the the good from us rather than putting us in a position where, you know, we're incentivized or put or otherwise uh, motivated to express the, the lesser or bad, like worst parts of ourselves, you know, and that's, that's all that can really be hoped for, right? Like tilting towards the good is mm -hmm. probably, is, is probably the best that we can do. And then it's that constant back and forth battle to try to, you know, maintain that direction of going towards the good. Um, but speaking of which, I mean, what's it been like to observe non-Bitcoin America? You know, the in-betweens of uh, between these meetups where you're at gas stations and restaurants and hotels and on the road and stuff and seeing what like what things really look like in America today. I mean, what, what's that been like? Yeah, one thing that I've just noticed at businesses across the country that when I was living in Thailand... And just kind of seeing America through Twitter, I had this feeling like a lot of this stuff is anecdotal. I don't know if, you know, the, the police violence I see or whatever during COVID and those kind of things, I would see these like 
really crazy things happening in America, but okay, someone captured that on camera somewhere, but is that really representative of everything that's happening in America? And so going on a road trip, I've now realized I'm seeing everything that's happening in America, or I'm, I'm getting a much larger sample at least than you would on Twitter. I'm obviously not seeing all of America, but some crazy things that I've seen is like inflation is real. That is not some, you know, tinfoil hat conspiracy thing that we're seeing really high inflation. Every single restaurant I go into, there are menu changes, there are card surcharges, there's hospitality charges, there's all sorts of things that I had never seen two years ago that are now popping up that add two to 3% to everything that you buy. Basically there's there, every bill is like a good 25% more because you add tip and you add all these service charges and everything. And so that's been a really like weird and wacky thing that I've noticed um, kind of around the U S also that everyone is hiring, which feels really strange to me. And I've asked business owners and waitresses and everything like why why is everyone hiring? Because I see this everywhere around the US and no one knows. All they know is they're having difficulty finding people to work or people aren't showing up to work, but no one can answer for me why Like everyone is hiring, especially when you turn on the news and everyone is saying a recession is coming and the world is burning, but still every, every restaurant needs 10 more waiters and waitresses. So that's been really strange. Um, as far as talking to people about, you know, the, the state of the world, I find that, and this kind of gets into like Bitcoin as the solution to a lot of these problems and having to go down that rabbit hole to discover it, but everyone has their reason why everything is screwed up and it kind of splits along the political aisles. You know, if I get into it with someone who's Republican, they're talking about immigration they're talking about biden being sleepy they're they have all these other reasons and if if only we put our people in charge then these things would be fixed and it's the same on the other side of the aisle it's all putin and trump screwed everything up and that's why we have high inflation or it's corporate greed and that's why people are jacking up prices and i find it's really difficult and maybe i just haven't figured out what the secret sauce is and probably isn't a secret sauce, but how to break that down and show people, no, it's from both sides of the aisle. It can be very easily explained by the incentives in the system to your last point. It's the incentives in the system. And I find it really interesting, like all the conspiracy theorists out there, like Alex Jones and whatnot, I used to laugh at them because I thought everything they said was complete bullshit. And now I see what they're saying is in a, a lot of cases coming true before our eyes, but I still don't agree that there's some group of child eating devil worshipers that have been pulling strings for 500 years. That seems pretty far fetched to me, but understanding Bitcoin and understanding our monetary system as a mirror in that has helped me see that you don't need to have that cabal of bankers and politicians and devil worshipers in order to get the same results that those, the people that believe in that talk about. And Bitcoin showed me that it's the incentives that are doing this. It's not necessarily that the people are inherently good or bad. And it's this like religious fight for 
for good between good and evil in the universe. It's just, we have really bad incentives and that drives people knowingly or unknowingly to do things that screw everything up. And that kind of feels like the situation that we're in today. And people know that something is screwed up, but they're just misdiagnosing the problem. Yeah. I think that's a great point. And I largely agree with that. I mean, anything's possible caveat, but I, I do like, you know, I do very much agree that when you see how easy it is for otherwise normal people to take extreme positions and to feel a certain way about things and to have their perspective so easily manipulated. And if, when you see that it is largely the incentives doing that, then it's quite easy to see like, uh, what's wrong with the world being an emergent phenomenon rather than like a top down, you know, intentional form of tyranny and control sort of thing. Now the answer, mm -hmm. you know, th there's, I'm sure there are those forces that exist as well, but probably not on the scale that, you know, your, your typical conspiracy theorist, you know, thinks. Um, but on that point, I mean, you know, you mentioned uh, when we were chatting on Twitter before this, that like your orange pilling abilities have, well, you've been practicing orange pilling throughout this. I mean, what is the, what kind of responses have you been getting from these people that see the world through, you know, partisan lens, you, when you bring up something like Bitcoin and attempt to make that case, what's it been like? Yeah. So this is something that I, I kind of came to a long time ago and I wrote a whole website of information about it, uh, because I had this feeling that especially after 2017, if you open with Bitcoin, people are already so loaded with negative uh, conceptions of what that means. They think of gambling and Ponzi schemes and tulip bubbles. So if you just say, oh, well, Bitcoin solves that, people laugh you off and don't take you seriously from that point forward. So I wrote a whole like website called whatismoney.info about the economic side. And my thesis is people will come through Google search asking questions like, what is inflation? Does, does fractional reserve banking cause inflation? What is money? And if I can give them an answer that takes them down the rabbit hole, because I had read these, these types of articles on sites like The Balance and Investopedia, and they just don't, they don't go deep enough. They just stop as if the Fed makes the, the physical laws of nature. They don't go deep enough into it. So I thought I'll go deeper. And then when people find these articles, they'll start to realize, oh, okay, something's seriously broken here. And then once they're armed with that idea that the money is broken, Bitcoin is, once they understand what Bitcoin is in a two minute conversation, it clicks, they get it. But if you open by saying, oh, Bitcoin does this, this, and this, they're like, no, shut up with your Ponzi scheme. So I found that like the, the effective orange pilling I've done has been through people who are really curious about Bitcoin, want to learn a little bit more and, uh, then I can kind of take them down the rabbit hole because they're disarmed. I've also found that the, the fact I'm doing a road trip has been a really disarming feature for talking about Bitcoin. I think if I just walked into a bar and started talking and I was like, oh yeah, I'm really into Bitcoin, then people would have just turned around because I've had that experience before where people are just, okay, I'm, I'm done with you. I don't need to talk to you because you're a scammer. But when I come in with this hat on and people are like, what is that Bitcoin tour thing? And I tell them, or people just ask me, what, so what are you doing in town? I had this happen in Nashville. I sat down and I said, the guy next to me was like, so what brings you to Nashville? Cause we're in a hotel bar. 
And I said, I'm doing this road trip around the country. And I didn't say anything about Bitcoin. I just said road trip around the country. And that topic, just nobody doesn't relate to that as being an interesting thing. I've right. never had anyone say, oh, whatever, you know, and walk away when I say I'm doing a road trip around the country. Because I think especially as Americans, that's such a cool thing that everyone aspires to do at some point. The, the mm. great American road trip is such a, a lore. It's right up there with the American dream of a white picket fence in a house. It might even be, it's more accessible now, I think, than a white picket fence. <laughs> so that always kind of starts the conversation. And then people are like, well, why? Like, what, what are you doing on the trip? How has it been? And I said, I'm going to Bitcoin meetups. And then it kind of, they're disarmed now. They're already interested, so they can't back away. And then they eventually start, well, you know, why would you go to Bitcoin meetups? What is the point of that? And starts getting into this kind of conversation that we're having right now, like who Bitcoiners are and why we care about this. And it just makes for a much easier conversation. I had this conversation in Nashville. One guy stopped me in Kansas City because I parked next to his Harley and I commented on his bike and he looked at mine and got signatures all over the saddlebags. And he's like, so, well, you're doing a road trip because I can see your plate is not from here. But like, what are you doing? Why are people signing the bags? And I ended up talking to him for like 45 minutes and found out his like sister lives in Thailand. He's like, get, let's get you my sister's address and everything. You're going to go visit her. Like he was so amped to have met me and to yeah. like learn a little bit about this world. Cause he's like, yeah, I don't know anything about it and I don't know how to approach it. So I'm glad that I, I met you. So I've had a, a couple of those really cool experiences where it just clicks and people start asking more questions and we go down the rabbit hole together. That's awesome. You know, I, I did a, a European road trip in 2018. I had finished up uh, work in Shanghai and I was in Thailand hanging out and I was just like, I want to do something cool. And so I went to uh, Amsterdam and bought a motorhome and just started driving north had no, my, the plan was I was going to use the RV as a place to just interview cool people, not just about Bitcoin, but like just anyone I come across that I think would be an interesting conversation. I'll just be the weirdo to be like, Hey, do you want to come into my truck and have a conversation? And I learned pretty quickly that one, that's weirder than most people are willing to accept Two, like the, the backdrop of the RV was not like, why record something in, in a, like a shitty old RV when you could be like on the edge of a river in Porto, Portugal and have this amazing backdrop. Like there's so many amazing backdrops that you want to do these interviews outside of the car. Um, and three, typically people need a little bit of notice if they're going to agree to such like a weird request, you know, cause I thought, Oh, I'll just rock up in Berlin. I'll be there for 24 hours. I'll like find a bunch of people online and say, Hey, I can swing by your, office and we can record a conversation or something. So it didn't work out as like perfectly as planned. I, I did it for like three or four months. And I think I recorded 20 or 25 um, conversations and some of them were, were awesome. Uh, but the reason why I think about it is, is twofold. One, the relationships you do build with people, like once they realize you're not a psychopath and like you, you, you're able to have like a really interesting conversation with someone that, you know, an hour ago, you didn't even know existed. And then what I thought was great about the trip was like, if you go on like your typical European holiday and you go to like Paris and Prague and Berlin, and you just go to these major cities, in many cases, they're tourist traps and you just go to all the same places. But when you're driving or like, like you get to experience the in-betweens, 
And that's where all the, the magic happens because you pass through these small towns and where, mo- you know, when you meet people, they're, they're almost surprised to see you because most people don't take that route. They're incredibly hospitable. They invite you in for dinner. You end up having these great conversations, these great nights around the fire, all this kind of stuff. And that ends up being the, the highlight of the whole trip. Not like, you know, going to these famous monuments in, in like in these uh, typical places, but just meeting normal people in between, like you, on your journey of going from one place to another. And so I, you know, that was by far the highlight for me when I did my trip. And, uh, you know, it sounds like you're having a bunch of those encounters as well. Yeah, that, that was something that I had an inkling would happen, but I didn't think to the extent that I've experienced it, that it would happen. Um, that's part of the reason I wanted to do a road trip rather than just fly around. Cause I want to see those in-betweens and on a motorcycle, you're really in it. You know, you can smell everything. It's, it's a much different experience than being in a car where you're kind of viewing the world through this window, being on a motorcycle, you're in the environment all the time, which I really en- enjoy. It's just much more visceral, real experience to me, but I've definitely had that. Like, that's why I started laughing because uh, the whole invite you in and everything. I went to, uh, Mount Airy, North Carolina, which is, I went there for the tourist traps, funny enough, because it's the town that Andy Griffith grew up. And I just kind of found that out, I think from Atlas Obscura, which is a great website that has just articles and like obscure stuff, just weird things. And it's always like really well-written and well-researched and interesting. But I found out from a guy in Nashville that they have a map as well. So you can look at points of interest in areas all over, at least the U S maybe around the world. And I found out mountain areas where Andy Griffith grew up. And as a little kid, I watched the Andy Griffith show quite a lot. Like I think on TV land, I used to watch oldie TV shows when I was really, really little. So I thought, well, I'm going to go past that area anyway. Why don't I take a 30 minute detour and go stay in Mount Airy? So stayed there for one night. And then the next morning I got up and went into the town. I didn't sleep that well. So I woke up at like six and went to the breakfast place and went to go get a haircut. And when I was getting a haircut, this couple from Long Island came in and the guy saw my riding jacket and he's like, Oh, do you, you ride a motorcycle? Is that your motorcycle out there? And I was like, yeah, I'm doing this motorcycle trip around the country. And he was like, do you want to go on a ride like today with me and my son? And I'm like, okay, I guess I don't really, (laughs) at first actually I said no to it. And then I was sitting there getting my haircut. And I thought, this is not the reason I went on this trip to say no to shit like this. It's to say yes to stuff like this. So I was like, you know what? I have time. Like, I don't need to be anywhere today. Let's do it. So he took me back to his house, just takes me to his house. He's showing me his workshop and all the things he works on. He's got like lathes from the 1920s that his grandfather bought that he's rebuilding and running and all this cool machinery takes me in the house. He's offering me breakfast. His wife's there and his son's there. And then they start up the motorcycles and we go out on a ride and rode for like an hour. And then we stopped on this bridge where we could see his house. And he's like, James, to his son, James, give him everything. Give him our phone numbers. Give him the address. Like give him all, all the information. And he said, next time you stay in Mount Airy, you're staying with us. You can stay with us anytime you need. And I'm like, man, I just met you and went on a ride for you, went on a ride with you for an hour. And you're already like welcoming me into your home to come stay for a night. But I have had that experience like 
many times on the road and it happens on those in-betweens. It doesn't happen in the, in the major cities. It's just, it feels kind of like a culture thing to me. The major cities, there's more people, people are more guarded. They're just not opening up to you like that. But in the in-betweens, people are much more trusting and open and they, it feels like go off intuition a lot more that, you know, if you meet someone and you click with them, you trust them until you have some reason not to, but mm-hmm. I felt like that. in a lot of my in-between interactions that people are just, once they get to know you, they shake your hand, they look you in the eyes, they talk to you for 20 minutes. They get a feeling that they go on that whether you're a good person or not and yeah. kind of roll with that. Yeah. And you know, we, we, on Bitcoin Twitter, especially, we often deride like, you know, your, your normie NPC, right? Because it's just people that aren't seeing, at least as far as we're concerned, what's going on in the world, the, what the problems are, the dangers, how to fix it, all that kind of stuff. And, you know, that may be true, but at my, my trip in 18, and it sounds like yours as well, it makes you realize like there are a lot of good people out there. They might not line up on all the things that you believe and they might have different perspectives and they might be bought into whatever, but like, there's a lot of good hearts out there, I guess I should say, you know, and, and maybe our minds kind of get that fuddled up uh, sometimes, but it's amazing that like the example that you just gave and, and several of my own where people just want to be trusting and want to be generous and want to share in a nice meal or a good experience or a beautiful landscape with someone they don't even know, you know? And so Mm -hmm. there's, and that's so beautiful to me. And, you know, I hope, and I think it's the case that as we move into hyper-Bitcoinization, more and more people are going to allow themselves to act that way because they'll be able to be rationally more trusting and they'll, they won't be in Mm -hmm. such a state of deprivation that they have to be considering all these other things when they meet someone that they can, they can really meet the person that they're in front of. They can see the, the, the truth of the person that they're in front of, and they can, they can interact with them on that basis. And I, you know, I'm very, that's a very beautiful notion. And I think all of your experiences that you've been having at these meetups and the in-betweens is probably reflective of that unfolding. Yeah. And I have this feeling that it has a lot to do with personal responsibility as well, which would explain why Bitcoiners, as well as people, out in the country in the in-betweens are kind of more trusting than, than people in the cities. Mm. Maybe personal responsibility is the wrong word, but this confidence in your ability to be independent and to handle any situation that you get thrown in, in a city, you have all these support systems around you. You have people, you have police, you have fire that are all very close to you all the time. So you don't need to rely on your own abilities. But if you live out in the country and you're two hours from a hospital and there's no police around, or you know it's gonna take them too long to get to you if someone breaks in your house, you have to do that yourself. You have to protect yourself. And it feels like the people that I meet out in the country, they're much more confident in their own abilities to protect themselves in a situation if I were to be dangerous or something. And I think that helps them then become and be more open and friendly because they have that sense of security. They know if shit hits the fan, they can defend themselves in this situation. Whereas in a city, there's you're relying more on external parties. So you don't really have that feeling of I can handle myself in this situation all the time. 
in a country that that's just how you survive. Like you, you wouldn't make it very long if you didn't know basic first aid and self-defense and things like that. Cause you, you'd have left the city or you'd have left the country because the first time something bad happens to you, you realize, oh, I need the support systems that only exist in very densely populated areas. That's just yeah. kind of one of my theories about why it's more open and friendly. Yeah, it makes sense. I mean, it's probably also the case that because of the support systems in rural areas are more composed of other normal individuals, right? Whereas in cities, yeah. it's yeah, the state, true. broadly speaking, and institutions and in rural areas, like you have to, or there's there's a greater reliance on other individuals or community members. And perhaps for that reason, things like trust and generosity and compassion are more, are more like uh, over indexed because you know, they're more, it's, it's more necessary for them to be, to have a sense of security and, and that kind of stuff. Um, mm -hmm. What's it been like, tell me about the Bitcoin circular economy. You know, it's still early days and it's still like HODL is still the main, uh, you know, thing that people are focused on, but it certainly seems like at least amongst one another, Bitcoiners are increasingly happy to you know, transact with one another, spend sats if what they're getting in return is something that they deem of value and, and they want to express that. So what's been your impression of the Bitcoin circular economy? Yeah, I think it's growing through meetups. That's, that's what I've noticed is because all these Bitcoiners are coming together and invariably some of them are producing things, they're starting to market their items at Bitcoin meetups. And it's obviously not like people are setting up tables and selling things. It's not, it doesn't feel commercial at all, but talk to someone for 10 minutes and you realize, oh, they have a farm and have things to sell and they want sats. So why wouldn't they sell it for sats? And it's kind of like, and it feels kind of kitschy to me. And I've always sort of felt this way about spending sats that it doesn't really matter what you spend. You're separating with value and getting something else that you think is higher value. So whether the medium that you're using is sats or dollars or shells or whatever, doesn't really matter for the purposes of that transaction. Of course, then the person who takes it has to do something with it. Like if a Bitcoiner gets dollars, they might have to then go buy Bitcoin if that's what they want to stack. But beyond that, there isn't really much substance to what's used in the transaction. But at a Bitcoin meetup, there's sort of this implicit idea that, well, I, I'm going to pay in Bitcoin or I'm going to take Bitcoin. So I've seen that happen a couple of times where like the guy I stayed with in, in uh, Michigan with the sheep and everything, he sells maple syrup, he sells lamb, sells all these different things that he's now overproducing and he sells it at Bitcoin meetups. People are just interested in getting good food direct from his farm. So I'm seeing this sort of community economy get rebuilt. And I, one of the first things I did on this trip is go to the beef initiative conference uh, that Texas slim put on as the first one in West Texas and learned a lot about food systems and kind of clicked with what I grew up thinking about food and food systems, which is everything is highly processed and you know, nothing really in America comes direct from the seed. There's always some chemical or, uh, intermediary that's handling that food or processing that food, especially if you're talking about the middle aisles of a grocery store, there's a ton of processing that goes into that. And uh, I think Bitcoiners are starting to realize that that's maybe not such a good thing for our health. And I'd rather have food 
that's close to me and that I understand how it was made. And uh, I think also COVID and supply chain fears and everything around food and inflation is now getting people and especially Bitcoiners to say, I want to have local connections for my food where I have a relationship with the person who produces the food all the way down to the seed and the soil. So there's nothing that can go wrong in that situation that can be debased in that situation, the way that food at the grocery store is. And that's kind of where I'm seeing the first circular economy things happen because people, there's a lot of demand. There's a lot of desperation for that kind of food. And there's a lot of people who are interested in providing that food who are creating homesteads and for whatever reason, going back to the land. And I think there are multiple reasons why people are, are doing that. And those, that supply and demand is now coming together a lot at Bitcoin meetups, because that's also a topic of conversation that I've gotten myself into a lot is food systems and how to get food and how to grow food and how to find you know, local producers that are producing food and, and link up those, that supply and that demand. So it's, it's definitely happening. There's a circular economy that's being produced. And a lot of it is coming through these meetups, I think. Yeah. I mean, it, it makes sense, right? How do I increase my self-reliance? How do I support producers that are producing good, you know, products that are good for my health, good for the environment, et cetera? How do I, you know, participate in this economy? How do I make sure that my, the, the money I do spend is going to other people that are aligned on values and doing, you know, um, that are doing good yeah. work? Like it, it all just, it feeds into itself. And, you know, to your point, it doesn't matter if you, you know, if it's a fiat dollar, if it's, if it's a sat, you know, on one hand, I agree because like, well, if you're holding, like, if you're not going to, if you can spend the fiat on food or you can just spend the fiat on Bitcoin and then spend the Bitcoin on food. And like, you know, what's really the difference there ultimately. Um, but I, I do experience like a visceral difference when I, when I use Bitcoin because I mean, and, Again, there's probably multiple reasons for that. Uh, and one of them is definitely like, well, if this is something I value almost more than anything and I'm giving it to someone, I mean, there, there's obviously that's going to be a more charged sort of transaction. Mm -hmm. But also, uh, if you give someone, you know, a fiat dollar, you're giving them a debt. You're saying, here, here's something that I know is going to allow someone else to steal from you. And like maybe subconsciously, that I don't like that, you know, if, if I'm transacting with someone on the basis of respect, you know, I respect this person, they're giving me something of value, I want to do the same. It feels kind of icky if I'm giving them a tool to be robbed from, you know, but if mm -hmm. I give them, you know, if I pay for their product or service in Bitcoin, I know that that's not the case, you know, I'm giving, so not only am I giving them something that I value tremendously, but I'm respecting them in the transaction as well. And for those two reasons, and I'm sure many others as well, uh, you know, I enjoy it. Like I enjoy spending sats on a product that, that I value. And like, for example, I mean, for many of us, I'm sure like buying really good quality meat direct from the producer is probably like, it's basically like take my sats sort of thing, right? Like I'm more than happy to spend for that kind of stuff. Cause that's a, that's a good value transaction. And, um, I think there's just going to be more and more and more of that where, you're going to be, you're going to be discerning, right? Because you don't want to spend sats. You want to keep as many sats as you can. So you're going to make sure that the things that you're buying are extremely high value, high quality necessity, you know, in some, 
in some case, in some capacity, extremely valuable to whatever development you're trying to foster lifestyle you're trying to have. But if once that decision is made, I mean, I think, I think more and more people are going to be very willing and even desiring to pay for those things in sats because of the, the way it feels and, and what, you know, how the transaction is constituted. Yeah, that's a good point. When you pay with dollars, it's kind of like a hot potato. You're just passing the hot potato to someone else and then they're going to get possibly burned with it unless they turn into the sats ASAP. And there is something, it, it feels to me like more peer to peer when I, that's kind of the feeling that I get the visceral feeling is when I spend with sats, it really feels like it's just me and the producer that are involved in this transaction. Right. When I spend a cash dollar bill, I look at it and I'm like, this isn't, there's someone else involved in this. There's a whole political process involved in this transaction that's getting in the middle of it. Even when I'm using cash, especially when I'm using a card or something, it's, there's so many intermediaries and so much messed up with that system. And when I'm just scanning a QR code and spending sats, it feels so much more connected. Like I'm, I'm shaking their hand rather than sending them a tweet or something. Yeah, totally. I mean, the dirty fiat intermediary rent seeking bullshit is not in between you and the products and yep. service of value that you're, uh, you know, you're trying to acquire or participate in. And increasingly, I mean, I hate interacting with that system, you know, for a variety of reasons. One, just the moral component of it. But two, it's just so inefficient and wasteful. It's so annoying to interact with the fiat system, you know, like it, it, like all the way down, you go into the bank, you're using online banking and like some apps and fintech stuff have, has, has made it less annoying. But when you combine the, you know, the two, the inefficiencies and the moral component of it, like I just, I increasingly am somewhat disgusted by having to interact with it and yeah. I prefer to minimize them as, as much as possible. And it feels so incredibly opaque too. Like I, I'm disgusted by how the system works, but I never get a clear understanding of the rules. And with Bitcoin, it was complicated when I was learning about addresses. And even now when I send a transaction, like, oh God, I hope it shows up. Cause I, you know, I, I'm not peeling back the UI and understanding how it really works all the way to the core. Right. So I get some apprehension around it, but I get even more apprehension, especially when I'm using something like PayPal or cash app, because I've had this happen to me more and more recently that a payment just gets stopped and I'm given no explanation. I had a friend try to pay me on cash app actually for a, a hotel room that we were going to split. And it was like $350. She sent the transaction to me on cash app. I got a notification on cash app saying you've been sent $350. I try to accept it. And it says, we've frozen this transaction for your protection. <laughs> and I was like, in what, in what world am I protected by not getting the money that I'm owed? I get it if I'm sending money and like, oh, you're sending it to the wrong person. We, you know, do you really want to send it there? But they literally said, you can't have this money. So I messaged their support, like what's going on with this? Why was this blocked? Give me some more information. And they're like, no, it's just for your safety. Our system flagged it. Okay, do you have any reason why it flagged it? You can, no. It just flagged it. That's just what happens. Like, well, I'm not going to use your platform then if you can just stop my money. Like, 
instantly. Yeah. So we ended up using a bunch of other things and trying to patch it together. But I've had that happen so many times where I use a financial app and it, it looks like, oh, this is going to be a great, easy experience, such a nice UI. And then you just get a block like, oh, you just can't do that. No explanation. You're just blocked from doing it. Yeah. I mean, you come, it's, it's very frustrating. You come face to face with the stark reality that it ain't your money. You think it's mm -hmm. yours. You know, uh, you have a, your name on the top of this nice little account that shows your balances and stuff, but that doesn't mean it's yours. It means you have a claim on access to it. And, you know, sometimes you have it, whether it's the hours of nine to five, Monday or Friday, you know, whatever it is, you can gain access to it. You're, you're granted permission to it, but it ain't yours, right? Yours yeah. is being able to do whatever you want with it, whenever you want with it. And it's increased, like as Bitcoin develops and as solutions develop, it just, it becomes, it's so it, like, you're just going to shift into a Bitcoin economy naturally because the alternative is, is so, uh, so annoying and so deficient and, and Bitcoin is so superior in, in nearly every way. And, you know, mm -hmm. case in point, I mean, my, I keep extremely low fiat balances and one of my bank accounts, like because of that charged me 16 bucks the other day, just like, sorry, your balance is too low. I'm like, first of all, it costs you nothing to have like the little digits represented in the ledger of my, like whatever the balance is. And like you rent, you, you, loan out my money, you make money on my money, like all that kind of stuff. And you're just, you're going to charge me 16 bucks because I don't have enough money in the account for your liking, you know, it's, just, it, it's all so absurd. And so, you know, when, uh, when the get on zero crowd first came out, I was kind of like, eh, you know, like, it seems like it's a little bit too, uh, there's too much friction there. And it makes sense to like, to keep a toe in the fiat world just for ease of, living and transacting and spending and stuff but just just naturally i i see myself close like getting closer and closer to being on zero because it's just it's the easier way to do things you know and i i, I want to hold as much bitcoin as possible and i prefer to transact in bitcoin for the things that i i value and so you know if the if the rails are in place why not you know be totally mm -hmm. on a bitcoin system and not have to interact and implicitly support the fiat system yeah and those rails are getting better and better every day which is great it's getting easier and easier and the way i see it is like i keep some working money in a bank account and some working money in hot wallets that i might want to use in the immediate couple weeks or whatever but the rest is basically in a vault and i'm getting to the point where a lot of it is going to be so vaulted that it would be incredibly difficult for me to get access to it. It would take me mm -hmm. like months to get access to it. And that I, I feel much safer having the money in Bitcoin, even though the dollar price is going all over the place and people are like, don't you go insane? You know, your net worth changes so much all the time. I'm like, no, cause I don't, I don't look at it and I don't think at it, think of it in those terms. Mm -hmm. What I am more concerned about is this largely invisible risks so far to people in the Western world and especially in America that you're going to wake up and your stock portfolio suddenly has a 20%, not 20% down, but a 20% haircut. They've just taken it. Or your bank account starts to say, if you don't spend, we're going to remove one or 2% out of your bank account to induce more spending into the economy to drive economic growth. Because it does feel like these things are, are coming 
And part of getting into Bitcoin was hearing proclamations of things like inflation and whatnot in like 2018, 2019, and then seeing them come true and realizing, shit, the, the only people that called this are not the people that are paid hundreds of thousands of bucks to work for the Fed, but the anonymous accounts on Twitter that were <laughs> calling this like two, three years ago. And what are they calling now? Things like CBDCs, more control on your money. And that whole, it's becoming irritating to use money in the fiat system, I think is only going to get worse. It's mm. They're going to use carrots like getting your UBI in your CBDC account. But if you don't spend that in 30 days, it disappears. And they're going to use all sorts of things to to get you to give up some of that value. They're gonna suck some of that value out or limit what you can spend on, limit how you can use that money. You can't buy Bitcoin with it. You can't buy stocks with certain cuts of that money. And it's not gonna be your money anymore. You know, It isn't now, but people aren't really confronted with that reality very often. I think they're gonna be confronted with that reality much more often. And that risk to me is, way greater than any dollar volatility risk in the in the short term totally agree and i apologize for looking down at my phone while you're talking there it's actually my my butcher right now is like asking me questions (laughs) and it's in it's in spanish so it's i'm struggling to understand what he's saying because i work with a local uh butcher and he delivers my meat you know once every week or two and um Today is the day, and I, 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 he's trying to tell me something. I'm not really sure what he's saying. But anyways, <laughs> I know you got to go soon. Um, and I just wanted to ask you basically one more thing because it's a topic that I think a lot about, and it's to, you know kind of totally unrelated or fairly unrelated to what we've been discussing. But you, in one of the, in preparation for this, I was looking through our Twitter DM exchanges, and one of the earlier ones, you uh, wrote me regarding the notion of progress that I was discussing, discussing with Eric one time on a podcast. And it's one that I, you know, I continue to think about and, and, you know, trying to gain clarity on, on what, how should we be conceptualizing progress? What does it really mean when you, you know, strip away the things that are presumed to be uh, evidence of progress, but perhaps as we reassess so many things as, you know, we are doing here in, in Bitcoin land are, perhaps not what we thought them to be. And I think there's a lot of notions of progress that fall into that category. And you said you had some thoughts on it, so I'd love to hear them. Yeah, so it was moving to Thailand that really made me think about this a lot. And I've had inklings of this before, traveling a lot and meeting people from other countries that like in America, to us, we have a very narrow version of what progress is. It's a very material progress and everything is sacrificed to that altar, at least in the communities that, I've been in my whole life, it feels like a lot is sacrificed to this altar of progress. There's this dream of going to the big city, making a lot of money, building a lot of material wealth, and that building not only for the individual, but for the the city, like a very prosperous city is a very big one with tall buildings and lots of glass and steel. And that's what progress looks like to to us, all these technologies, these new phones that do new things. And that's kind of what we dream of as progress. And when I moved to Thailand, a lot of that materialism kind of fell away. And uh, as I explored outside of Chiang Mai, I started to come into contact with these hill tribes that live in the mountains, kind of in Thailand, Myanmar, China, Laos, Cambodia, Vietnam, 
they're spread out all over the place. And I think the first hill tribe I met was kind of west of Bangkok, like on the Myanmar border. And I remember talking to the, the guy who spoke perfect English about, you know, what, like, are you guys Thai? Are you Burmese? You know, what, like, what nation spoke, do you live in? He spoke perfect English? He spoke perfect English, like impeccable English. So he said, well, we're Mun. And I was like, okay, well, what, I've never heard of Mun before. Is that like a, you're a hill tribe? Is it a country? And he said, well, we used to have our own land, but we lost it in a war with the Burmese. And so I'm thinking, okay, this is probably like a World War II conflict or something. So I asked him, when did you lose that war? And he said, 600 years ago. <laughs> and they still have their own language. They have their own distinct culture that's distinct from Thai and Burmese culture. Of course, has like a similar feeling because of just they live off the same type of land and they have the same type of foods and things, but their own distinct culture that they've kept distinct for 600 years. And I went up to their village the next day and walked around and everyone is smiling. Everyone is happy. They were getting together that day and having a meal together because somebody had a kid, like had a baby that morning. So they were all going in and visiting the baby one by one. And I looked around like these people are so much happier than anyone I've met in the US but they're living in bamboo huts on dirt. They have nothing materially. And they don't even have like very much motorized equipment because they don't really need it. They just walk around in their, their village and they barely have electricity. They don't really have running water. They go down to the river and get water. Like in, in a Western sense, we would come to that village and look and say, wow, these people are so poor. Like, we need to help them. We need to get them running water. We need to get them electricity. We need to bring them closer to our sense of progress, to these glass and steel buildings. And these people in the Hill Tribe, it was so interesting because like this guy, he spoke perfect English. He hasn't lived in the tribe his entire life. He went to Bangkok. He went to Yangon. He got an education. And he said, a lot of people do that from the Hill Tribe. They'll go work and dress in a suit every day and go in a high rise in Bangkok and work for years but they, their home is in the hill tribe and they will come back to the tribe. And that's where they consider their home to be. And that's like their happiest place. They go to the, the city to see what it's all about and to earn some money and bring some resources back to their hill tribe or some experiences or some stories or whatever. But that's not really their, their culture and their way of life. And it just struck me like we have this one idea of progress, but when I look at people who live in that world, they're much less happy than the people who don't have any of that and have a different idea of progress, which is much more around community and spirituality and family than you know, steel, glass and steel buildings and new tech. And they've yeah. accessed those things, but they still consciously reject them, which is the craziest yeah. thing to me. That's very interesting. I, I, I think ultimately it has to come back to, it has to be defined by what you value, right? Mm -hmm. So if you value conveniences and gratification and stimulation of various kinds, then you're going to see like a big bustling city as a form of progress. If you value community and a certain, and you know, a greater degree of harmony with nature, let's say, 
um, stronger family bonds, whatever type of food, then maybe a more rural uh, setting, like you'll interpret that as progress, you know? And so then, then we come to a very interesting question. And I think Bitcoin is bringing us a lot, a lot of us to this question is, well, what is most justifiably of value? And, you know, perhaps there's no greater question than that, because that goes all the way to the notion of God, basically. And so, you know, progress, you could say is like, well, the degree to which you're inching closer to God, however you def like, and that's such a loaded word that, you know, we'd, we'd probably spend hours unpacking, like what that means to different people. But if we just simply say like, God is the, is the, the thing of highest value to which you are striving towards, you know? So first of all, your notion of progress will be dictated by what that is for you. But then the, I think the more fundamental question is, is there a qualitative distinction between what that is? Like, it, is it all just relative or is there actually something that is justifiably of higher value than all other things? And if the answer to that is yes, what is it and how should we be striving toward it? And I think broadly speaking, we could say, well, I, I, I think modern Western culture, uh, you know, broadly speaking, has probably veered off course in many regards in that. And I'm not saying that, you know, reverting back to hill tribe sort of life is the answer. It's probably somewhere in between. And there's probably, you know, um, valuable insights that we could glean from an analysis of both of those ways of living. But, um, but yeah, I mean, it's been something I've been thinking a lot about because as you're trying to orient your, your life most optimally around what is most valuable, I think you inevitably have to confront that question. And it seems to be the case for, again, a variety of reasons that we, we can discuss another time perhaps, is that Bitcoin is inspiring or conjuring up these questions in a lot of our minds because it's helping us to reframe value and gain clarity around value and ask a lot of these questions that help us, you know, uh, reorder the world because we've under we came to understand the world um, maybe through a faulty lens or a distorted lens or with a different set of incentives, for example. And now we're, we're having to reconstitute and recapitulate it in what we hope to be a more truthful perception. And what does that mean for how we, we see value and progress and all these things? And, you know, so interesting, yeah. interesting, wow, uh, lots more ground to cover, let's say. That is really well put. <laughs> <Damn>. <laughs> yeah, well, look, that, man, that makes uh, total sense to me. I, I know you got to shoot off very soon. Was there anything uh, you wanted to get off your chest or, or discuss or share before we, we shut this thing down? No, I think that's all. I mean, we, we covered so much. Damn, this was a great conversation. Awesome. Well, look, man, I, I think it's super cool what you're doing. It, how much you're, you've covered 8,000 miles. I think your goal was to cover 10. How, how much longer are you going to be doing this? Uh, let's see. It's the 23rd. So like three, four more weeks. I'm and basically in, I'm in, sorry, go ahead. Go ahead. Uh, I'm in Denver for another week and then I will head down to Phoenix like through the mountains, I'm going to go to a meetup in Montrose, visit a regenerative ranch, maybe meet some Bitcoiners in Durango, Colorado, then head across the desert to Phoenix and then to the West Coast and do like San Diego, LA, Orange County, and uh, San Francisco. 
Awesome. Um, what comes after this? What's next after the, the tour is over? <laughs> that is a very good question. Um, a lot of people have asked me that and I don't have a very good answer to it, to be honest. I feel like most, most of the great things in my life have started with a seed of an idea when I least expected it. So mm. I'm kind of like J.M. Bush. I'm, I'm waiting for God or waiting for the universe to tell me what's going to happen next. And I haven't gotten that seed yet. I'm just so focused on doing this trip and doing it well. So we'll see when that seed comes. I do know I'm going to go back to Thailand. So I'll go back this fall and I still have an apartment there and everything. So I'll settle back into life there and then I'll kind of figure out what comes next. Well, I can say with a fairly high degree of confidence that, you know, Bitcoin's Bitcoin is like a serendipity machine as well, you know, like mm -hmm. because of, and obviously all the interactions that you've had over the last several months are going to feed into that, but it, it just, just seems like you orient yourself around this thing. You do so with honesty and humility and integrity and shit just works out. So I suspect that'll be the case with you as well. Um, I appreciate the time, man. You know, I hope you enjoy the rest of uh, your travels and, and things back in Thailand are good. And let's, let's do this again when it's all been, you know, the, the book has been closed on this leg of the journey and, and whatever comes next, we'll, we'll have a chat and do an update. Thanks, John. Appreciate your time. All right, brother. Thank you Take so care. much. Yeah. Talk to you soon. All See right. Ya. Have a good one. Peace.